The opinions expressed on this podcast should be construed only as the opinions of the respective opiners, and some content may not be appropriate for little dragons. Discretion is advised. I can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work. Determination. I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to Hiya, the only podcast that's broadcast for the badass with a brain and hopefully a sense of humor. Episode 51, recorded marching into April 2014, starts now. And I bet you thought it never would, but here it is. So sorry for the lag, folks. Uh, Briefly, right up at the top, let me explain why. Well, first, let me tell you, um, at the very front of my apologies for this, uh, I need to apologize to our interview tonight, Rory Miller, who has been sitting in the can longer than Prince Albert. So, again, very sorry about that. It wasn't intentional. But here's what happened, people. I got work again. So, that's a great thing. Yes, not broke, but no foo, no fun, no nothing, because I had... 10, then 12, then 14 hour day shifts, seven days a week. Um, and it made it literally impossible for me to indulge in any podcasting activities. What little time I had left was dealing with family and trying not to fall apart. So thanks for your patience. I am no longer making any promises as to when and where you will get these, except to say that, uh, despite appearances, They will keep coming short of me, you know, walking in front of a bus or something. (laughs) And I may have a couple of weeks off now, so uh, maybe I can pack some more content in for you before I hit the grind again. And not every show I get on is going to be this bad. This one was just kind of off the rails. Mm Mm-hmm. Out of control. Crazy. So uh, it was a dead run the entire time. Some shows, they'll... They'll let you. They'll let you go home on the weekend. You know things like that. But anyway, enough about my work and not work. Uh, yeah, Whew. I'm glad to be out the other side of that one. People, very much glad. And you know, um, I've been off for about a week now, so I should have already had this done. But there's another problem when you get sucked away from doing a project like this for so long. Inertia. <laughs> you. You get sort of a, a rhythm built up doing these podcasts, and you're clicking on all eight. You know when you're going to do what, and then you have to stop. And just getting the freaking ball rolling again can be problematic, even when you've got an interview sitting in the can. Because guess what? I haven't been able to wrangle a co-host for this show, and there's no point in it really. I just need to get it out there. We'll have a co-host on the next one, I'm pretty sure, because a certain so and so is back in town for a minute. But. Uh, You know, it's just, I lost my train of thought. Maybe I can edit this. Who knows? Making more work for myself. Uh, No, you just, you, you, you lose the rhythm of doing the thing and, uh, and see you do stuff like this. And I hate babbling in front of a microphone by myself. I'm no good at it. I really should write out lengthy scripts, but I'm just, yeah, I'm not going to do it. Sorry. (laughs) I don't have time. You'd never get a podcast if I tried that. 
so I'm going to try not to babble on too long, but, um, and I'm going to put most of my talking up here at the front of the show. So don't worry, you'll have a little bit of me yammering to listen to. And then mostly it's just great content, but I, I particularly want to thank some of the people that helped pull me out of my inertia, you know, got all the usual contributors, uh, Ryan Lindsay, Jeff Westfall, whose segment will be, uh, probably be immediately after the interview. So stay tuned for that. We're going regular with that thing, folks. It's about damn time. He's he's done his penance, uh, proven himself, I would say. That last episode certainly generated a lot of heat. The Elephant in the Room show. Craig has already told me he wants to come by and and uh, do a Jane, you're ig- you ignorant slut moment uh, where he uh, <coughs> rebuts that one. So maybe we'll have a little fun with that. Heck, maybe I can put him and Ryan head to head. Not Ryan. Jeff, Sorry. This is what you get. This is what you get when it's just me in a room with a microphone. I just, I can't speak properly that way. But anyway, moving along, I also want to thank some some new helpers with the podcast. And believe me, this is a podcast that can use help in all kinds of ways. But I want to specifically thank uh, Marty Passmore. He is a sound engineer, and he's fairly local to us here in Georgia. And he heard me complaining and whining on and on about the sound quality of the program. And wrote in to offer his advice, and also just to say, and he did give me some good advice and let me bounce some things off of him, but mainly it was just good to hear from someone else that it sounds okay, Dave. Shut the hell up. It sounds fine. Just talk. Just do your thing. Quit worrying about it. Uh, So that was a message I needed to hear, and I really appreciate that. Thanks, Marty. And also Matt Strader who, uh, out of the blue, I was uh, deep in the doldrums, the dungeon of, of uh, set painting, and uh, I was going home one day and checked my email on the phone, and there was an email from this fella, this fella Matt. Out of the blue, he had tracked down my PayPal account somehow. I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> I'm sure it's all above board. And uh, just dropped 30 bucks in the can for the show. That's right. And uh, he said, and I think this is a great idea, you know, use it for whatever you need, uh, stock the Champagne Lounge. Yes, that's it. You're our official first sponsor for the Champagne Lounge, and he kicked us enough ducats to, to keep the fridge full for this episode and the next. So, yeah, bonus, two-episode sponsor for the Champagne Lounge. We appreciate it, and we'll crack one in your honor, and maybe even pour out a sip, but we hate to be wasteful. So... Again, thanks. It's it's things like this that remind me that people are still out there listening and, and, and like the podcast. So that's why I'm forcing myself to step up here in front of you today in front of this microphone by myself, staring at a wall in my little house. At least all the kids are out of town. The family's gone for a couple of days. So yeah, we got to get this thing done. Um, so on to the, the meat of the program. Uh, first off, like I mentioned before, we have Rory Miller, who, uh, is a popular writer. A couple of his books are considered classics in the field of, uh, I don't know if you want to call it reality-based self-defense or whatever, but definitely dealing with issues of violence and, uh, how they intersect with, uh, a person's life, whether you're a martial artist or a regular Joe uh, or both, <laughs> And uh, when I conducted this interview, I hadn't had a chance to read any of his books yet, which I hate doing, but sometimes timing just works out that way. Since then, I've read two of them, um, Meditations on Violence and Facing Violence. 
which came out several years later. Uh, really, Big Al <clears throat> mentioned this the last time he was on, but Meditations is a classic in the field. And I think Facing Violence is a great book, too. There, there are a lot of similarities between the two books because their content overlaps considerably. So what I would suggest to the high listeners who want to go out there and read one, decide which one to read first by deciding if you want something that's geared a little more directly towards martial artists. That would be the Meditations one. And uh, if, you know, if you want a bit broader layman's perspective then facing violence is good. It spends a little more time on things like legal issues and stuff, and a little less time on martial-specific things, martial artist-specific things. But this this interview, I want to say at first, it was difficult uh, because of our connection. So we're just going to have to deal with that for what it is, and uh, I definitely want to talk to him again. So, you know, there's some of that Skype awkwardness, blah, blah, blah. I'll cut out anything too glaring, but it's going to be one of those ones where you're just going to have to deal with the fact that we're trying to communicate via Skype. So we do the best we can. Um, and, uh, well, we'll let you go on into the interview, but uh, check back in towards the end of the show. I'll have a little media mop-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, guess what I saw? Festival screening, Raid 2. We're going to talk about that. And uh, in between there and now, enjoy the interview with Roy Miller and your Marshall Brain segment, segment, segment. All right, thanks, folks. Hiya. Privileged to have in the studio with me today via Skype, Rory Miller. Um, now, I usually paraphrase these or do something on my own, but I found a little bio of, uh, of Rory that uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verbatim because it's so on point. <laughs> uh, Rory Miller is a writer and teacher living peacefully in the Pacific Northwest. He has served for 17 years as a correction, in corrections as an officer and a sergeant working maximum security, booking, and mental health leading a tactical team and teaching subjects ranging from defensive tactics and use of force to first aid and crisis communications with the mentally ill. For 14 months, he was an advisor to the Iraqi correction system working in Baghdad in Kurdish Suleimania. And somewhere in the midst of that, he received a BS degree in psychology, served in the National Guard as a combat medic, earned college uh, varsities in judo and fencing, and received a mokuroku in jiu-jitsu. He has drunk Chichu with reformed cannibals and 18-year-old scotch with generals and loves long sword fights on the beach. 
Now, uh, you'll have to tell me, Roy, uh, is that long sword fights or long sword fights on the beach that you love? <laughs> Both. It's, uh, I hate writing those things. I hate writing the biography. You're supposed to put everything in there and make it personal. And um, I, I just well, really, I, really hate being well, I thought that I thought that one was great. So <laughs> good job, even if you hate doing it. Well, let's go ahead and start out. We like to get a baseline on everybody that we interview here. So the first question is always pretty identical for each interviewee. Um, please elaborate for me on your background in the martial arts, military, law enforcement, and go ahead and divide that up however you like. Uh, put the dividing lines wherever you like. But uh, give us uh, you know, your background and how oh, you got into this stuff. Oh, let's see. Are you old enough to remember the uh, late 70s, early 80s? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was born in 68, so I remember them clearly. Okay. Um, at that time, martial arts was supposed to be the way to be a complete human being. Sure. And um, when I was 11, my parents had decided the world was going to end. Because if you remember the 70s, the world was always going to end. There was nuclear war and euro dollars and population bomb and killer bees coming up from South America. Yeah, if it wasn't and one thing. ozone was layers. And that, <laughs> and that was the ice age, too. Remember, the ice age was coming. Yeah. So we really um, got that one wrong, <laughs> right? Yeah, or maybe we didn't, and it's just waiting. Yes. Um, anyway, so my parents that we went off in the desert in eastern Oregon. I think I'm going to kill the camera because this is starting to jump a little bit. Yeah, we're getting a little lag. Is that I'll go ahead. on your end too? I will go ahead and turn my camera off too. Okay. There. Let's see if that works better. Um, I went through my uh, junior high school and high school years essentially as living on a cross between a homesteading ranch and a survivalist compound. And I really, really wanted to do martial arts, um, only from having read like two books that featured them and seeing one trailer to a Bruce Lee movie was how remote we were. So when I went to college, that was one of the first things I did, and I just happened to sign up for judo. It was a martial art. I didn't know there was a difference between any of them. And um, the Oregon State team at the time, the, uh, the head instructor was uh, had been on the West German national team. The guy that was doing the day-to-day teaching was a former nationals champ. And it was set the bar for what I consider good instruction was. It's I loved judo as a, as a place to start. There's no mysticism. There was no bullshit. It was just physics, fitness, and ruthless efficiency. You know, your first year of judo, you know everything the upper black belts know. They're just better at it than you are. Right. And, um, yeah, and, again, one of the things I love about judo and jiu-jitsu is, like, you were on the mat. You knew if, you knew what you could do, and you knew what you couldn't do. So I started in judo. Um, I dabbled in everything else. Um, Oregon State had what they called the uh, ASOSU, uh, Associate Students of Oregon State um, Experimental College, where pretty much anyone that felt like the qualified to teach it if they could teach it. So I took every martial art that was in the syllabus for regular gym classes. I was working out with the team and I was taking all these night classes I could for no credit to try everything. It was a uh, way beyond obsession. It was crazy. Um, <laughs> totally loved it. <laughs> so, sounds like you were lucky in the uh, beginning then and that could be everything as the old saying says. 
Well, and, and going into the whole martial arts thing is so. Every, everyone that starts when they first start, they're what they call naive consumers, which means they couldn't tell a good instructor from a bad instructor. And there's there's almost no way to tell. If anyone would ever write a handbook, then all the bad instructors would just start imitating whatever words were in the handbook. Sure. And pull them over. So yeah, it's hugely luck when you first start. Um, what's going to set your base? I was incredibly lucky with Wolfgang and um, Sensei Moore. Um, let's see. So judo college. It took me ten years to put myself through college because I was on the. I'll go as long as I could till I run out of money. Like go work until I saved enough money to go back and go until I ran out. So it took 10 years to go through college. Um, about halfway through that, I joined the National Guard. Um, during one of the times when I left to work, I went to Reno and I was bouncing into casino for a year, a little over a year. The, the only reason I got into corrections was because um, newly married, baby on the way, and I realized, oh my God, I need a real job. Uh-huh. And I was kind of happy, you know, I want to get into law enforcement eventually. I thought that would be a good fit. And the first job that came through was corrections. And it was a really, really good fit. It was um, incredibly challenging. It's, it's you, You're, you've got your, your brain, your body, your observational skills, the way you can communicate. And you're locked in a room with, at the time when I was doing our, our normal was 32. Um, there was one place where I was working with a partner with 190. Um, no separation, it was direct supervision. So they weren't locked away in cells, you were in there with them. Wow. And you handled it all, most force of personality. No weapons, you had a radio. Um, about my 13th or 14th year in there, we were finally allowed to carry pepper spray on the inside. but. My first, first thirteen years, no weapons. The the fear being obviously that your weapon could be taken away and used against you or someone else, right? Well, yeah, and there's um, there's a whole bunch of one of the corrections is a whole bunch of history. At one point, you know, and this was a hundred years ago. All corrections officers carried a billy club, and that was both a weapon and a symbol of authority. And got a lot of emotional weight attached to it. And yeah, if it gets taken away from you, it's an issue. And I was far more concerned with, um, you know, someone taking a weapon away from me in a fight is dangerous. Some pickpocket getting it where I don't notice it for two hours is really freaking dangerous. Right. Well, um, yes. let me, uh, actually, let's pause right here and we'll pick this back up. Let's try to reestablish the connection because I'm still getting some pretty bad dropouts over here. We'll just call back with the cameras off. Often that fixes it. Do you mind doing that? Nope, not at all. I will hang up on you. Okay, I'll call you right back. So is this better? Yeah, that, that's actually a lot better. And I think we're syncing up a little better, too. Okay, it sounds about the same on my end, but... Okay, it's it's definitely a little better over here. We'll just roll with it. I can fix a lot of this in post. I just wanted to give that a shot. Okay, so picking back up post on... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Fine. Oh, post is evidently some magic time because everyone says they can fix things in post. It's crazy. I don't even know <laughs> what post is, but I know it's really... 
It's it's a post out in the yard that I take my computer out and whack it on when it doesn't behave. It's it's learned to respect nice. the post. Yeah. Um, all right, let, let me uh, let me keep us on the the prison guarding theme here for just a second. Um, I, I have a question. I often get up on a kind of a hobby horse. Well, not often, but occasionally on this podcast, regular listeners will have noticed it. I did uh, animal control for a long time. I was an animal control officer. And uh, how do you feel about the general public impression as compared to, like, police officers or or firemen or firefighters or whatever that uh, people who are in the professions like uh, prison guard and dog catcher or whatever you want to call it – can you put your finger on why you know one side gets all the love and the other side gets all the hate (laughs) okay yeah there's a huge rant here if you want it oh yeah Um, lay it on me there are a couple couple things going on one is that as our society becomes more and more for want of a better world I'll say mild um, people in general are very uncomfortable with anyone who is comfortable with using force when was the last time you saw anyone depicted, I mean, it's not since John Wayne days where there was a sheriff who wasn't either an alcoholic or conflicted or, or on his third divorce. Yeah. Right. So people, to actually think that someone can be as smart as you are, as honorable as you are, and able to gauge in force when you aren't, would be to admit that he's better than you. And our society can't do that. It has to believe that the people that can handle this and handle it well are broken. And um, it's become such an incredible trope in our fiction, in, in our movies, in our TV. And that informs a huge amount of what people know about the world, way more than it should. Um, so on that level, um, second, especially with corrections, corrections specifically, um, People sense this incredible power, and there is an incredible amount of power in that system. Um, Within the system, the system controls food, it controls light, it controls entertainment, it controls education. Um, And it would appear to be a perfect vehicle for corruption. And there have been places I read about, places I've heard about where that was possibly true. Um, As far as the corruption goes, you know, as far as who the bad guys are, you're, again, you have people that are outnumbered. No individual has the power to really do that when they're outnumbered 75 to 1. And of that 75, many of them are affiliated with each other in, in gangs. Right. So there's that balance. There's, um, there's also, again, going back to the media, when was the last time we saw someone in especially jail guards in that profession who wasn't depicted as being a bad guy yeah it's the exact same and thing with uh with animal control you know it's always the guy in the white suit with the butterfly net that's trying to you know uh, capture the dogs who are just out having a good time eating spaghetti and falling in love you know and that's almost universal <laughs> took me a second to find that reference playing back through but okay i got it lady in the tramp <laughs> yes exactly um, yeah, it's it just one of those, um, just one of those things. I realize that means absolutely nothing. Um, one of the other aspects, so and this is in the bibliography of one of one of my books. I can't remember if it's Meditations or Facing Violence. 
Um, I recommended some books that were written by criminals, um, but I had to put a big caveat on them because the thing I find most fascinating about those books isn't what they think or their worldview because they lie about that reflexively. It's when you sit there and look at the book and look at how this person is a read is is trying to influence me as a reader and convince me that he's a good guy, that he's the hero or the victim. Mm-hmm. And I know their crimes. I at the time I had access to computer systems where I could. Um, uh, Norman Mailer got so completely snowed by, uh, I must say, Henry Abbott that he, he moved heaven and earth, this incredibly rich, powerful writer with lots, moved heaven and earth to get him out of prison because he just definitely shouldn't be in there. Look at, look at his writing. No one could write like this with such a soul. And he stabbed a guy within another week of being out. Yeah. It was just, you know, it, it was who he was. But part of that, especially at that high level, is the extreme manipulation that they're so good at. Um, if you haven't dealt with the population, and, if, and you know, for any of your listeners that have especially addicts in their system, one of, one of the things that is a biggest glitch for a rookie to get over, one of the, one of the first when you realize it, it, cha- it shifts your whole worldview around. In the normal world, you can bet that if someone doesn't have a reason to lie, they're telling the truth. Truth is the easy default. Um, we all know living in regular society that you have to keep track of lies, you don't have to keep track of truth. When people find out you're a liar, they don't trust you. It makes your life harder. In that subculture, um, you only tell the truth if you have no choice. And it's not a moral thing, it's not evil, it's not, it's not on that spectrum. The spectrum in their world where it's marginal, where you take care of yourself, um, a drug dealer can't go to a lawyer to enforce a contract with another drug dealer. They can't call in the police to settle disputes. They, they handle it themselves. And in that world, you never give up power if you can avoid it, and knowledge is power. They aren't reflexively lying because they're reflexively bad or deceptive. It's simply a survival trait in that world. Right. And, um, and when you look at you know uh, the the people that have gone to support them in a number of times that they've been clearly snowed, and we're talking some really really well known people who've written great books or very how criminals work, and you're reading through with someone that's worked with the same population, seeing how they've just been snowed and they ate it, they they believed it all, is incredible. So how does one guard against? Uh so, that is it. Is it purely? Is it purely knowledge? Uh, you know that you pick up from understanding how the criminal mind works. Uh, you know from from exposure to that, or do they try to train you into that on the way in? You know how do you how do you deal with that in in practice? Everyone tries, everyone tries to prepare. You know we pre- try to prepare the rookies with the academies about, um, but I think a lot of this is not people haven't really put it into words yet. There's, there's a wonderful book um, by Costas and I can't remember, but it's Games Criminals Play. And it's just a, it's something we used to give to all of our rookies. I got a copy when I came on. And it is just a dissection of how officers have been corrupted um, over time and the methods that they use to do it. But within their you can see it, but until someone points out that you notice that they lied unless they were forced into telling the truth. 
or they were afraid to lie. Um, you missed that part. There was another author that pointed out that in um, certain criminals don't feel shame. They don't get the concept. Right. They understand that they need to say something about remorse right. sentencing, but they don't get it. And they think that we're all faking that emotion as well. Right. Um, but it wasn't until someone pointed that out that things clicked into, into place. So there's stuff that we know, um, but we don't have words for yet. So training people for this up to this time has been hard. Um, yeah, and even leaving aside like yeah. the the sociopaths and stuff, one of the one of the most profound things I learned when I was you know twenty something years old and for the first time like going into all the bad places in D.C. in the '90s and dealing with drug dealers and their pit bulls and their Rottweilers and on and on was uh, that you know they're still despite coming from a very different framework they're still human beings just like you and I are and on one level you can sort of understand their motivations if you can put yourself in their place to some extent you know the 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 10 year old kids that were running around in those places were just like 10 year old kids anywhere but it was some point you know around puberty when they realized that they had limited options in life you know a lot of them it looked like um you know i'm gonna cook fried chicken and die of heart disease when i'm 50 or i'm gonna have a you know a gangster life and maybe die when i'm 25 but i'd rather do that you know uh, just understanding elements of, of their psychology. Do they, you know, do they put you guys through the paces on that too? It, they tried. Uh, one of the things, academics have a whole bunch of theories about this and the theory is more important to them than whether it works or not. Sure. Um, <laughs> the thing that, it, seriously, because one of the things, um, and, and that's why I, I take the whole moral issue out of it. If, you were raised or I was raised in that environment, I would be a different person. I would adapt to the environment. Um, I like to think that I would be as successful in that environment as I am in this environment, but that place's definition of success might involve me being a pretty nasty human being. Exactly. That's a bunch um, of People seeing. are not... Yeah. It's, the model I use, because one of the hardest things is in a self-defense class I, I, the techniques and the physical stuff is important, but the, the idea of giving yourself permission to change the way you think. Um, most of us, are you familiar with, with Maslow? And I, I talk about Maslow a lot, so. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, familiar, familiar in, a layman, in a layman's sense, yes. Okay, so that, that hierarchy of needs, it starts with survival. Right. You know, you're drowning, your tiger's chewing on your leg. That's number one. And the next one up is security, and that's will I have food tomorrow? Um, the next two levels are social. Do you have a group do you belong to? Do you have a place in that group? And the top of his pyramid, what he called self-actualized, is someone that feels so secure in all those things that he can do whatever the hell he wants. Um, most of us, our ancestors took care of the survival and security levels. It's people, basically, unless you're shut in, people don't starve anymore. Right. We, does anyone... I, I had one class where I go, does anyone in here know anyone that's been eaten by a wild animal? One guy raised his hand and goes, I was mauled by a jaguar. Um, <laughs> but it turns out he's a vet specializing in exotic animals, so it's a definitely a first world problem. Exactly. Um, yeah. But it's, okay, so because most of the conflicts we've experienced has been at those social levels, we assume that all conflict is like that. So when you, what I do with the self-defense class is, okay, 
what did they tell you about drowning people in your in your water rescue classes? Well, nothing. Oh, about I thought you meant about actually physically drowning them. It's, oh no, you, they you about the reaction. Swim. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You don't swim out there to help a drowning. Person. You can't come up with the soothing words to keep them from climbing on your head and drowning you. You hold out a stick for them to grab onto. Right. Okay. Because if you go out there and swim. You aren't a human being to them. You're a flotation device. And the nicest, sweetest person in the world will kill you for a breath of air. Right. Um, so it's one of those. So when you see someone in excited delirium, someone who's had a bad reaction, um, a bad crack reaction, a PC reaction, they're in that mind frame. Nothing you know about getting in touch with their inner child or their self-esteem issues um, will help with that because that's not the issue. They're working from a lower level of the pyramid than you've ever seen. Um, so, and the second one, you know, if I, if you need to feed your children, you aren't going to fight someone. We don't fight cows. We butcher them. We right. don't fight deer. We hunt them. Right. It's and the, if your only chance to save your starving children was to, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. We're, it's, it's, <clears throat> we've still go got ahead. a little lag, which is making this awkward, but we'll get through it. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I was just going to say, it's the difference between dominance and predatory violence. You know, most people, until mm -hmm. they get mugged or whatever, or have never been exposed to predatory violence. It's all been dominance violence, pecking order stuff in school or whatever. Right. And, and the tools, if someone is, uh, and this is, again, goes to martial arts and martial artists. If someone needs money for drugs, which is almost as powerful drive as food for your children, in some cases, I'm unfortunately aware of it's been more powerful. Um, they aren't going to go after the six foot two shaved head guy with Muay Thai tattooed on his knuckles. All right. <laughs> Most of the martial athletes guys are into this don't need it in the self defense um, aspect. So, anyway, on that level, someone's going to hunt you. They aren't, and they probably aren't going to pick you. In good shape. Um, no, they, they're going to pick someone small, weak, tired, distracted, all, all that stuff. So once again, the mindset, I do this with them. Who are you going to pick in this room? And they always pick the same person because in every room there's one person who is the easiest pickings. Right. Um, okay, and this person, if, you, if I want to fight, especially when I want to fight to train, I want to play with someone bigger and stronger, better than I am because I learn more. Um, or someone about my size because it's the most fun. But this isn't about fun. This is about getting your stuff and getting out of there without anyone knowing, without getting hurt. And the highest level, and this is one of the things with Maslow, it was always presented in a psychology course, like if you got to that level, you'd be some kind of saint or artist or philanthropist or scientist. But some people get to that level and they are just nasty. They're now hurting people because they've realized they like it. And they toy with people. For the for the people working from the lower level, you're a resource. For people working from that level, you're a toy. And we can sit there and, you know, whatever hobby you have that you're obsessed with, which is probably martial arts if you're listening to this. Um, some people have that level of obsession with her. Right, so and it's sort it's of... It's not that they think differently. It's, it's a different animal from what we yeah, consider they don't martial arts. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, it's, 
it's not that they think differently than we do, but they think about they're working from different levels. We're familiar with these levels, um, but however passionate you are about your hobby is how passionate someone else will be about not giving up. And if his hobby is, is molesting children, he uh, has that same attitude. Um, that sounded really horrible, so let me put it this way. How many years have you studied martial arts? Uh, 25 off and on a little bit. Um, is it the place where you step out in the mat and the world makes sense, you know exactly what everything really is? Yeah. It's Okay. Is uh, how how much does it cost you in time, money, and injuries over the years? Uh, a significant amount. You know, sacrifices made and potential earnings, uh, money paid to to learn, and of course the injuries just go with the territory. How many of your friends and relatives think you're crazy to do it? Oh, you know, they think I'm crazy for a lot of reasons, uh, but uh, yeah, some of, some of them think I'm a little off my rocker. Are you ever going to give it up? Uh, no, not until it quits me. And I, I could bounce those same questions to someone else about murder or rape, and he would give the same answers. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's not a thought pattern that we can't have or don't understand, um, but they've put it in a place that's not allowed and shouldn't be allowed. So, so let's go ahead and, and move into some of, uh, you know, we're already segueing into that anyway, but, you know, you, you teach martial arts and uh, self-defense, reality-based self-defense, if you want to call it that. I don't know if you do want to call it that because that term has some baggage now. Uh, but explain to the listeners, you know, what, what your, uh, your pedagogy is like, what, what sort of programs you do and what they're aimed at. For, for the civilian, not necessarily for the, uh, you know, for the professional. My most basic, basic, and this are, these are my assumptions, um, most martial arts are inherently effective. They arose in places where violence was more common than it is now. They arose in places and from people that were successful at dealing with that violence. They have an inherent understanding of the dynamics of it. But through a number of things, mostly, you know, several instructor generations that have not dealt with the violence themselves mm -hmm. and then the number especially with the Japanese arts that were taught um, they call it traditional but that's not the traditional training method to get a whole bunch of people lined up and doing the same thing by row while one person looks on and barks orders it was originally taught small group very intimate lots of good detail so um, between the fact that most of what we got we got through crappy translators who hated the people people that are occupying their country, um, trying to teach large groups of GIs instead of family members, and that we've got quite a distance as a touchstone with, um, for most arts of when it was last really used. And it's really rare to find anyone that's used it enough to actually start seeing connections. Um, that things, oh, you have a box, it's tools. Um, everyone has a box of tools, a martial arts or box of tools. I'm trying to show them how to read a blueprint so they know where those tools go. Gotcha. Okay. So most of what I, yeah. so most of what I teach, I don't try to tell them what to do. I mean, you've been studying martial arts for 25 years. 
what are the odds I'm going to teach you something that's both both effective and brand new? Right. Uh, you know, pretty slim, although it may be something I hadn't focused on or realized the potential of before. Yeah. So, yeah. So maybe some insights, but it's not like I'm going to change your, and I'm not going to change your physicality and your nature. If you've been changing for 25 years, what kind of moron would I be if I wanted to try to instantly clone you to fight like me? We aren't the same size. We don't deal with the same problems. We don't think the same way. We don't move the same way. So, um, so the first thing, most of what I do is, is about teaching context, where things fit, what it's going to be like. Things don't happen on this even floor. Let's go play on the stairs and see how this works. Um, and trying to get it to work with your natural movement. And if you've been training for 20 years, your martial arts have become part of your natural movement. The first thing you have to do in a fight is to forget your training. Forget everything because the part of your brain that remembers is probably the shittiest part of your brain to try to use in a fight. Right. Just trust it's a natural way to move. So, um, and it's when I've got some tactics I throw. But one of the things is, is okay, if you want reality based self defense, all buzzwords bug me at some point. That one gets into whose reality. But if you want one that really bugs me, it's warriors. Warriors? Okay. Warriors, yes. If you're a soldier who's been on deployment in a war zone, you're a warrior. You're the only one that deserves that title, not me. You know, and you've earned it. I'm not going to try to put anybody's glory from that. So within this, the martial arts, I'm not interested so much in trying to forge a warrior, whatever that means, as trying to rehabilitate a predator into the wild. We are natural. We're natural fighters. We... You know, you are the product of four billion years of successful evolution. You are not a product of losing fights. Right. Your ancestors were good at this, naturally. And it's and that's the thing. It's something needs to be awakened. It's not not something needs to be created or placed or given. And so most of my pedagogy, I still don't know if I like that word. It just sounds weird. Um, but most of it is about making people realize they already know how to see. If you know how to see and you know how to move, you can do whatever you need to do if you let yourself. And most of the stuff that gets in people's way is internal. It's not lack of knowledge. I've never, I won't say never, I cannot recall ever debriefing anyone who got their ass kicked that they didn't know exactly what they needed to do. They just couldn't make themselves do it. That's the part that kills them. Right. So... So you're saying a lot of what's involved here is um, making sure that the person's in the right uh, the right headspace uh, to do what they can either do through training or naturally, but uh, helping them get you know their sort of uh, civilized day to day rational brain out of the way in these circumstances. The only thing I'd argue with that is that I don't think your day to day brain is that rational. I well, think it's this tribal emotionally stunted thing always wondering what other people are thinking yeah I mean in large and, part and, that's and there's true stuff. sorry go ahead yeah. no it, it's one of those it's um we, we pretend it's rational but that's the one that freezes you and if it was too, truly rational it would go you know hind brain you're better at this than I am you take over let's go ape shit <laughs> yeah and that's the rational 
Right. Well, you, so you engage your rationality when you choose your training and you engage in your training, but you don't try to engage your rationality if you're going to fight at that moment. Sort of. Uh, I, um, and, and this gets into rationality versus pseudo-rationality, which um, sometimes, sometimes the rational thing is to not think. Yes. Okay, I just need to react. Um, let, let the subconscious take care the of voices, it. Right, but a lot of times the voices in our head are going, and this sounds really rational, and that's one of the things. Have you ever been really, really frozen? Uh, you know, it's, it's like something sharp is coming at your belly. Everything goes slow, slow motion, and you start having these crystal clear thoughts. Right. And the crystal clear thoughts seem so rational, and when you debrief afterwards, we're so unutterably stupid. And so, and and that's why I'm worried about you know being being rational because a lot of times we think we're rational. I have one guy, he goes, oh, I wasn't frozen. I just decided not to move because for some reason I don't remember the reason now, but it made perfect sense at the time. And it's like, and I know that those were those crystal clear thoughts in his head, which are not rational. Um, but because they're so clear, they feel like they are. And that's and that whole mindset is something. It's it can be a trap when you start, you know, thinking, okay, I'm rational, therefore my training is working really well while your face is getting booted right. on the ground. I'm doing really, which is another thought that's been running through my head while my face is getting kicked. It's like, I'm doing really, really, I'm not even scared. <laughs> it's because there's so many endorphins in my system. Right, not feeling the pain either. Yet. You aren't feeling so you aren't afraid and so you aren't and so you convince yourself you're doing well while you're actually sucking really bad well how do you how do you attack that with the different people that come to you let's just to to separate it here like if you had someone who was a quote-unquote traditional martial artist and was coming to you for training to help break that open versus someone who was a fairly accomplished sporting martial artist either judo or mma or something like that do you need a different approach with those two types of people, or is it does it all boil down to the sort of the same thing? I, I can do them together. The thing is that um, everyone has bad habits. There's no way to to practice breaking people without breaking them, and th- that's all martial arts is, right? It's just about breaking people. There's nothing else to it. Mm-hmm. All, all the all the we put into it, the philosophy and everything, are, are added to it to make us feel better. But the essence of it is it's about breaking. Um, and you sit there, have you ever broken anyone in training? And, it's, and how rare is it to break someone in training? Right. As in physically injure them in training. So you get the traditional guys, they have... I'm talking crippling, but yeah. Right, right, but, okay. So you get these... And they have incorporated one set of training habits so that they don't break people. And those training habits have become just as much a part of their tradition as the part that's about breaking people. Um, the sport guys, especially, they play harder, they play with more contact, and they still have a really low instance of breaking people. And that should make them sit back and go, hmm, because that means that the safety flaws that they've built in have ingrained even harder, so they're more reflexive at high speed. So everyone is coming it's not a matter of, of learning they already know how to break people it's a matter of making them conscious of where they aren't 
breaking people and why. It's um, one of the things I love doing with really, really good grapplers is to, to have them freeze and stop. You know, I'll, I'll roll with them and it's like, freeze right now. If you had to kill me right now, how would you do it? And if they're any kind of martial artist at all, there's always an answer. There's almost always an instantaneous thing that they could do that would be far more damaging than what they're doing, but they've gone into the mindset of the game. Gotcha. And so with them, you work on mindset. With the traditionalists, and I'll, I'll pick on the karate guys, you have to get them to actually touch people. Yeah. You can't break someone without touching them, so let's bring in those. It's, karate has excellent body mechanics for infighting, but it sucks at its own sparring distance. Um, so I get them close, get them touching. Um, with the sport guys, I get them slowed down so they're seeing opportunities. They're seeing how quickly they could finish it if it was important enough to be going hands-on. So, and so yeah, everyone's got these, but it's not a matter of learning more stuff. It's a matter of either unlearning things or seeing what they're doing that doesn't fit what they think they're doing. And that's, and that's everybody. Seriously, if you are not crippling people in training, you aren't training what, you're, what you think you are. Right, that makes sense. So if that right, makes sense, <laughs> no, it makes good sense. So, um, and I, I've heard you point out, uh, or seen you point out in some of your writing before that, uh, and I, I really like this as a as a stopgap when I'm having that argument. Oh, you traditional martial artists, you can't really fight. You don't ever touch. Either. That's not true. in what I do, we do touch each other all the time. Uh, you know, we have contact. I should probably put it that way, uh, and pretty hard contact. But uh, you know, they'll say, "Well, you know, you guys just aren't as tough. You don't, you don't have full-on contact all the time. You know, uh, you're, you talk about the streets, but your stuff won't work in the streets. You know, because you're no good." And I like to point out to them something I've heard you say, which is, you know, there are tactics that work great in an ambush that are lousy in the ring. And vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You, so uh, elaborate on the little bit. I mean, do you do you have to fill in those gaps for people when you're teaching them and kind of push it one way or the other? Or it, that, that's the whole point in a lot of ways. Um, but it's one of those things. Uh, um, this is going to go off in another philosophy thing. And I've only got about another fifteen minutes. Okay. Okay. No problem. So um, teaching. <sighs> Okay, fighting is, fighting is inherently chaotic. It's one of the most open-ended systems in the world. There's everything you can do physically, everything that person or persons could do physically. Weapons or no weapons, there's a social and communication aspect to it. It is incredibly complicated. It's probably at least as complicated as language. Um, there is no way to work an open system to really get good at it, to anything you have to be able to adapt to by doing it by rote. Um, the, the easiest example um, is learning a foreign language. You could memorize every word in there and know all the grammar rules and still not be able to argue. Okay. And if you can't argue, you can't say that you know the language. Um, and it's, there are other analogies. So breaking it up, the, the way I see it, there are four aspects of training. Um, there's teaching, which is you know talking, words, connections, brain work. That's really important if you want to find connections, if you want to go to new places, you want to experiment, design, test. It's got some value to it. Um, Training. Um, Training is anything you learn by rote. It's all the drills. As near as I can tell, that is almost worthless in a fight. Um, Training. uh, One of the slides we tell is you're going to fight the way that you train. 
And if you've had that hormone stew of your first big adrenaline rush, you're fighting in this, it's not your body, it's not your brain, it's not the ones you trained with, it's not what you remember about your training, it's just this huge chaotic mess. Um, there's a threshold of, of a certain number of instants where suddenly you get over that a little bit and your training can kick in and it can become pretty effective, really effective. But I don't know anyone where the training has come in in the first instant ever. Um, the Air Force, according to Ken Murray in Training at the Speed of Life, he said the Air Force set ACE at five <laughs> because their best research said that no one, no one remembered their training for their first three to five dogfights. That you got through your first three to five on instinct and luck. And somewhere after that magic threshold, you had instinct, luck, and your training, and you were really good. Um, so training, taking that out. So this is where this is where I get to. That leads to two things. One is conditioning. Um, I, I'm sure you've heard some numbers. You know, how many reps does it take to learn a new skill? Uh, Ten thousand is the one they toss around now. Malcolm Gladwell and all that. How many? Times, blah blah blah. Okay, how many times does it take you to learn not to touch a hot stove? Oh, not more than twice, I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm hard-headed. And then that's the difference between conditioning. Yeah, that's the difference between conditioning and training. Um, conditioning is natural. Uh, behavioral psychologists say it's the only way that, that people really do learn. Um, but it's basically stimulus, response, reward. And that one, the first issue with it is it can't be complex. You can't, as near as I can tell, it take years and years and years and years and years to condition complexity, except for the fourth way of training, which we'll get to. Um, but um, whereas your training won't come out in your first couple of fights, your conditioning will, and you can't stop it. And that includes your bad conditioning. Have you ever seen an instructor that um, that punishes a student for tagging him? Uh, yeah, not, not fond of that, but yeah. All right, well, so look at the logic of this. As an instructor, this person's been teaching that student to be able to fight well. When they prove that they can fight well by tagging it, then they punish the student for doing this. What do you think the hindbrain learns? Don't do that. Yeah, that winning is more dangerous than losing. You'll be punished if you win. Right. And so no matter how much training time you put into learning, if you're conditioning to lose, you've created a loser. The person's reflex in a fight will be to lose because that instructor has shown, proven to the hindbrain that losing is safer than winning. So, um, so we're conditioning people all the time. We're doing it accidentally more often than not. And this is one of the things you really have to watch as you're training, is, is the stuff that you're randomly conditioning that you aren't even aware of. Um, with face contact, if someone's been, you know, you do non-contact style, you'll not think to hit actually hit somebody when it's time when you desperately need to. And if you do, you'll have this moment of waiting for the punishment because you've always been punished before. And that's getting over that conditioning is really, really one of the most important things. Um, the fourth way, so, so far we've got teaching, training, and conditioning. Yeah. Um, the most important is play. Whatever skill you have, you have to play with it. If you try to memorize it or drill it or anything, but you never play, you can't use it in chaos. And that's, and that's the essence of it. Everything's got to be done with play. Um, it's the way that mammals learn. All, all animals, as far as I know, learn through play. Humans are the only creatures stupid enough 
to turn learning into work. Um, <laughs> we, um, and it's one of the things, if you, again, another example I use all the time. Um, if you give a kid a video game, how long does it take for him to get good at it? Uh, not long, typically. He'll hold up with it and just work on it until he is good at it. He's not working on it. He's playing. Playing, he goes yeah, through exactly. the tutorial and then he gets in. And, and so he gets to the point where he's reflexive. He's trying new stuff. As he gets better, he'll, he'll experiment and try new stuff. If we taught video games the way that we teach martial arts, you know, you need to use the tip of your thumb, not the pad of your thumb, and you aren't hitting the X no button simultaneously and try to get their brain involved, they could take 10 years and still suck and hate it. No, that's, that's, anyway, a, that's a great point. So, and, uh, you know, we have... I call it the pleasure principle. You know, people are like, what martial arts should I study? Well, study the one that you enjoy enough and you have enough fun doing that you're actually going to get out there and do it over and over again obsessively and play with it. Because that's the one you'll be good at. Yeah. I tell them to work with anything that makes it a joy to move. Move your body. Excellent. Um, the, okay. Ah, I had a thought there and it just ran out of my brain, which happens a lot as I get older. It's the concussions. <laughs> concussions are bad for you, but So I've read. Well, back when I could so, read, before all the concussions. So, <laughs> so what I do with the play is, uh, and most of the drills I use are just variations of safe games, free flow. I don't tell you what to do, but where we can go as safely as possible with as little script as possible and have people be aware and be creative and they realize how much they can do. And as I increase the complexity, um, end of the second day, I'm having people pair up and my safety flaw is usually going slightly slow mo or slow motion or slightly slow. But they're going to town in a, in a bathroom, uh, rubbing soap in each other's eyes and smashing heads into walls and having a great time because it's a play. And if you establish it safely enough that they don't have to be afraid, no one's going to get hurt, but you might get thrown through the drywall. Right. And, uh, and there's certain people that just giggle at the thought of that. Well, they get a little nervous. Once they see it and feel it, by the end of the day, they're giggling at the thought of it, and it's just been fun. But, that, but the way you played as a child is still the way you naturally move as an adult. And that's what you revert to under stress. So any of the physical stuff that I do, I want them playing with it. Not thinking, not trying to memorize and not trying to make me happy. Just seeing how much they can control the universe or control the bad guy and throw him into a wall. No, that's, uh, that sounds great, actually. Um, what... Uh and I know we're running out of time here, so I'll, I'll keep this short. Um, so you've got those those elements. Um, when you want them to translate that into uh, into actual self-defense as opposed to play, you know, back when you're to the point of, okay, you have to break this person, are there any little psychological tricks that you give them to cross that line, or is that just another long learning process? It's, it's not... I don't think it's so much a long learning process as a permission aspect. Okay. Um, and, and we call this, and there's a whole bunch of things that um, we call it glitch hunting. When you start looking at your students, what do they hesitate over? And how do you work on getting them past that hesitation? But getting them to the point that they believe that they are more valuable than the scumbag that's putting them in this position and that it's okay. And part of that, um, it depends on the relationship. 
um, there are a handful of people I think trust me enough as a I'm gonna say father figure for want of a better word. They want to say you have my permission. If you need to, if you need to hurt this guy, hurt him. If you need to, do it. Do not hesitate. It'll be messy. And part of it um, also. Ah, oh, this is way too much to go into. Um, by addressing everything, not just not just the physical part, but the the violence dynamics, the ethics of it, um, and the aftermath, they're more comfortable with where it all fits. So they're less unknowns to freeze them. Okay. So you don't get the the officer going, you know, oh my God, I'm going to get sued and I'm going to be under IA. It's like, yeah, I'm going to get sued and I'm going to be under IA and I'm going to be the one alive to testify. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, and, you know, I, I understand I, I, every question I throw at you, I'm trying to open a can of worms and, and our time is running out as well as our connection is not great this time. So, you know, I not only will I take a rain check if, if sometime in the future we can talk again, but uh, I, let's go ahead and refer all the people who are listening to this to where they can dig deeper into into what you do, your work, uh, and and read up on this stuff or train in more detail. I've got a bunch of books out. Always happy when people read them. Um, I've got a website at Kiron Training, C H I R O N. T R A I N I N G dot com and Kiron Training dot blogspot dot com is where I do my thinking out loud and I've been doing a lot of thinking out loud so <laughs> those are the best ways to do it. All right. Well, well, we'll put all that in the show notes. And uh, I've, I've uh, definitely read around on your blog a lot and have very much enjoyed it. So, right. listeners, you should go check that out. And, uh, one quick last question before you go. Do you have any feet of clay stories for us? Any little humorous anecdotes you can drop on our listeners just to leave them with a smile on their face, something that's happened in your training or in your life? Oh, crap. I'm mostly an idiot. Um, <laughs> none of the stuff I learned did I ever learn by being smart. Um, <laughs> put it that way. Um, oh, crap. The, the longest fight ever, I was in no danger whatsoever at any time. But we had to wait for uh, a restraint board to be brought in for an hour and a half. The entire fight was trying to not let a guy bang his whole head against the concrete floor. Try, <laughs> trying to protect him from himself. He didn't try to attack me. He didn't try anything on the hold whatsoever. He'd start slamming his own head into the concrete. Oh, my God. Um, it's... Uh, Let's see, really embarrassing ones. The the worst, the the most stamped I took was um, it suddenly popped one of those crystal clear thoughts. If I hurt these guys, I'm going to lose my job. I have a baby on the way, and I need the insurance. And I I went into a fight with no intention of ending it. And that one was almost very expensive. Um, I reached for a gun I wasn't carrying. <laughs> yeah, no, there's some stories. Well, <laughs> that'll have to do for now. I know we're out of time, but uh, thank you. I apologize for the shoddy connection. Skype, I blame Skype. That's the <laughs> I'll sue them later. But thank you so much for coming on uh, to talk with us. I'm so remote. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, let's do this again, man. A little more loose. Okay. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's always here! Yeah.
once upon a time It's all over but the shouting I hung a take what's mine We're searching for the latest thing A break in this routine Talking some new kicks What's like you ain't never seen This is home This is Mean Street It's our home Only when I know This is home See a gun is real easy Desperate part of town turns you from hunted into hunter. You're going hunt somebody down. Wait a minute, somebody said. This is Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. How much can you learn from a martial arts seminar? Are martial arts seminars worth the money? Between the summer of 1984 and the spring of 2013, I attended more than 180 seminars for more than 2,100 training hours. It should be obvious that I am convinced of the value of seminar training. Of course, it goes without saying that regular formal training with a competent instructor is preferable to learning from a seminar. So why would a martial artist pay good money to attend one? Well, there are a number of possible reasons. One is that there is no formal training at all available for you within a reasonable distance. This is the most difficult situation because your lack of experience in the martial arts doesn't leave you much of a foundation on which to build. Another reason for attending a seminar is to gain knowledge and experience in a different style of martial arts from the one in which you normally train, or to learn from a different instructor than your own. Some instructors and organizations have rules forbidding their students from training with anyone else. If you are a student in one of these situations, you might want to ask yourself, what is my instructor or association afraid that I might learn? How much of the information presented at a seminar can you retain well enough to make a difference? There are a few variables to consider here before we discuss what you can do to enhance your experience. One is the amount of time that the instructor allows for you to practice and take notes before he presents the next bit of material. There's quite a bit of variation from one instructor to another when it comes to this. Another variable is the complexity and difficulty of the material being presented. This can seem worse if the martial art being taught is new to you. Again, there is considerable variation from one presenter to another. Yet one more variable applies if and when you decide to attend later seminars with the same instructor. I have attended four seminars with one instructor who taught exactly the same curriculum each time. This can be either a positive or negative feature. If the material presented is highly complex and difficult to perfect, then the repetition from the instructor is very helpful. If the material is easier to absorb and then to retain, then a higher turnover rate of material from one seminar to the next is more desirable. Now, let's discuss methods for improving your ability to retain the information presented. 
First, pay attention. Okay, I know this seems obvious, but frequently the person teaching the seminar is an important figure to you, maybe an idol of yours. When I was younger and less experienced at seminars, I would sometimes find myself so starstruck that I didn't remember important details of the technique just presented. Take good notes. At one of the earliest seminars I attended in 1984, it was actually a five-day camp, I noticed that almost no one was taking notes. As a matter of fact, one fellow stood at my shoulder looking down at me as I scratched at my notebook and smirked, You can't take notes on this stuff. It's too complicated. He didn't add the phrase, You moronic rookie. But he didn't need to. You could tell from his facial expression. Undaunted, I persisted with my efforts, and by the end of the camp, people were asking to copy my notes. Here are some tricks that I've learned. Be sure you pair off with a partner who understands that you will be taking time out to take notes. This is important because your note-taking will use up a bit of the precious practice time allowed by the presenter before he or she moves on to more material. At first, make only a short entry as a placeholder and a reminder before practicing the technique just presented with your partner. Then, at the first opportunity, go back over these cursory notes and flesh them out, usually during lunch break or after the seminar. Many is the time I had to turn down an invitation from fellow seminar attendees to join them in a night of partying because I needed to spend several hours in my hotel room going over my notes a second or third time. Keep in mind I was doing this for years before laptop computers were available. One thing I did that helped enormously in the taking of high-quality notes was to memorize anatomical terminology. It is quicker and more precise to write something like supinate the forearm while extending the elbow, or externally rotate the hip while flexing the ankle, as opposed to using everyday terms to describe these motions. Organize your notes into usable files on a computer. My notes from the last 30 years have become thousands of pages in hundreds of files and folders. Because of the way I've organized them, I can usually locate anything I want within seconds. Integrate your new notes into your old files as soon as possible. Follow up with diligent practice soon and often. As soon as possible in the days following the seminar, meet with a partner and practice the techniques. An excellent tactic at this point is to video record your practice sessions while the seminar is still fairly fresh in your mind. Go back to more seminars to check for mistakes and omissions. This is your chance to ask questions of the instructor that crop up while practicing since the last seminar and to watch him or her demonstrate movements of which you were unsure. Always look to take more notes to compare to those from earlier seminars. Invest in private lessons when possible. Frequently, you can arrange to take some private lessons with the instructor while he or she is in town for the seminar. While this can be quite pricey, it is almost always worth the extra money. There are additional reasons besides learning new techniques for attending a seminar. The first is inspiration. Now this may sound a little cheesy, but it is true that after nearly every seminar I've ever attended, I was more fired up than normal about training for the next few weeks. Exposure to new concepts. When I attended my first seminar with Guru Dan Inosanto in 1984, I was in pursuit of training in Junfan Gung Fu and the Filipino martial arts. 
I didn't expect Guru Dan to produce a couple of strange-looking training pads he called tie pads and ask for a volunteer to come try them. I was unfamiliar with Muay Thai, so I volunteered and I did my first round ever of kicking tie pads in front of hundreds of my peers. It was an eye-opening experience that led directly to my pursuit of training in Muay Thai. This is just another of many debts that I owe to Guru Inosanto. Well, there you have it. I hope you found this information useful. I welcome your feedback at rpmartialarts.com. This has been Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. Raid 2. Uh, if you've been a long-time listener, you will remember back, oh, it was in the first 10 episodes or so, we reviewed the original Raid. I went with uh, <clears throat> old Shaolin pal Douglas Hutchinson to check this thing out, and uh, we were scraping our jaws off the floor after that movie. Uh, so how does the Raid 2 stack up? Well, first, let me say this right off the bat. Watched it in a film festival setting at the Atlanta Film Festival, kind of a midnight movie thing. So the crowd was primed for it, which was a good thing. And, uh, you know, when you got an action movie like this one, having people going, oh, oh God, you know, in the background <laughs> during the intense moments, some, some sympathetic wows, um, you know, can be a lot of fun. So uh, that's got a tick in its favor. But I, what, how I'm going to do this is I'm going to kind of contrast, because I don't want to go deep into the plots or anything else of this movie, or the other one I'm going to contrast with it, which I just saw recently, finally, and is a new Foo movie, relatively, The Grandmaster, or just Grandmaster. Yet another in the long string of uh, Ip Man movies that are making it to the screen now. So, and I, I want to keep this brief. Um but let's just go point by point and compare a few things here. Uh, you know, the plot for the raid two in a nutshell is all the people that, uh, Rama took out in the good old, uh, high rise the previous time as badass as that was, they were just small fry. So the larger organization is uh, a huge threat to him. And he's convinced that the only way he can, uh, <clears throat> he can, uh, protect his family is to put them in protection and go deep undercover to get the big boys. All right? Fairly standard action movie plot looked at in that simple of terms. Guy goes undercover to take down the big guys. Um, the Grandmaster, the plot for that one is uh, also fairly common in action movies, especially of this sort. Uh, traditional master tries to adapt to changing times. And that's a theme we see over and over again in these types of things, especially ones that are set somewhere in that period where they're transitioning from the Empire to the Republic to, you know, modern China. Uh, so that gives you a framework for both of these movies. Now, the first raid was pretty plot light. This one definitely has more plot, more intrigue. It's sort of got a... Mm, 
it's sort of got a modern gangsterish kind of tone mixed with almost horror movie elements, I would have to say, just because of how extreme the violence can be and how weird some of the characters are. Uh, but it's definitely gritty, modern thriller, gangster type stuff. And uh, the plot, we'll just sweep this out of the way at the front. The plot's kind of cool. I was half drunk. <clears throat> you know, it was midnight screening. I didn't follow it as closely as I will on a second watch, <laughs> but it was serviceable. The acting was good. The plot made sense as far as I could follow it uh, under the circumstances. Uh, we had we were beaten a trail to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> from all the the pre-lubrication and the uh, they were serving beer during the screening. So all that was great. Um, but yeah, I wasn't completely on top of the plot anyway. And I don't want to spoil what I do know about it because it hasn't even come out in most places yet. So let's get past the plot for both of these movies. Visually, they're both very striking films. Um, and Gareth Ewens has, has done a great job... Uh, uh, broadening the scope of this film. You know, the opening shot is like this beautiful long distance thing out in a field of an execution and the city is represented really well. The action is clear and in focus and on screen, which just drives me crazy. All these movies trying to imitate say born identity, which wasn't bad in and of itself, but now people just shake the camera and throw some crap around and do extreme close-ups and, and basically leave all the fighting up to the Foley work. <clears throat> Not here, although the Foley's pretty good too. Um, in The Grandmaster, the visuals are, they go beyond very good into just lush. You know, this is really well-directed, well-photographed, and uh, you know, since the old days, these these kung fu movies really have come a long way towards looking like sumptuous, sumptuous, modern, glorious filmmaking. Um, and uh, so it's got that going for it. The pacing, unlike uh, The Raid, where it's plot punctuated frequently by intense bouts of frenetic action, in uh, The Grandmaster, the tone's more stately and subdued. And, um, <clears throat> you know, often things are just hinted at and... You see almost as much practicing, I think, as you do fighting in the film. It's not really a very fight-heavy movie, but it's got plenty of drama to make up for that. Um, the violence itself in The Raid 2 is what we saw in The Raid 1 and just amplified and enlarged. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's ultra-realistic and very graphic. And it ain't for everybody, folks. I'm telling you right now. My wife loves action movies, but she had a hard time with The Raid 1. Wouldn't even take her to The Raid 2. It would just be overwhelming. And there is it, this is a two-hour and 15 or 20-minute movie we're talking here, part two. So if you don't have a tolerance for this kind of stuff, you may well suffer from overload or just... it's It borders on so realistic that it can be really cringy for people. And I get that. I totally get that. Um... Me, I guess I'm inured enough from, you know, loving Dawn of the Dead when I was eight years old or whatever to graphic violence that, you know, it's still, it gets to me. <laughs> it's rough. Uh, really, the only thing not very realistic about the violence is, you know, and this is going to hold true for any action movie, is just the pure, unrealistic uh, endurance of the lead characters. 
the important characters always seem to have like a bonus life bar or two or five or six. And the beatings that some of these people take and pop back up are just insane. Although, you know, the mooks, they go down and they go down hard. So it's one of those things. And I just, I can't, the uh, Eco Weiss, who I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, and the guy who played Mad Dog in the first film and has a reprisal role in this one, is a genuine sea lot master. Um, they choreograph this stuff, and it's brilliant. It's creative. It's It's not the same old Kung Fu moves you've seen over and over again, necessarily the heavy use of weapons and, and other things, uh, you know, strategy, the very first fight, I'll spoil a little bit. The very first fight is, uh, is our hero, uh, in prison. And apparently, you know, they're coming to get him and he uses a bathroom stall basically as a choke point to beat the dog shit out of about 40 dudes. <laughs> He's literally piling them up in the thing behind him. But, you know, if such a thing were possible, that's probably about what it would look like. Uh, so, you know, moving over to the Grandmaster on that, the the action is very stylized, very formalized. It follows the same recipe that we've sort of grown accustomed to in these uh, period piece actioner uh, dramas that... Uh, you know, they've got the fighting. Sometimes they include a little realism into the violence, but it's mostly uh, more for entertainment and, and in some cases even symbolic value in this one. So what what does this leave us with? Well, <clears throat> uh, you know, you can only see uh, Raid 2 at film festivals right now, although I think it, it may even be open wide by the time this uh, podcast goes up. So... For me, I'm going to rate that thing out of five nunchucks, five chucks up. I can't, you know, for me personally, because I have a tolerance for the gore and all that other stuff, and it's, and it feels like something new, you know? The first one definitely did. This is carrying on in the same vein, but there's an enormous amount of creativity and something different's going on here than your run-of-the-mill action movies. And it even takes it farther than a lot of stuff that Tony Jaa and some of these other more modern action heroes have done. So I got to give this one kudos. If, if you have the stomach for it, I don't think you'll find a better action movie in the theaters this year, period. And I know it's early to say that. And hell, hopefully somebody will prove me wrong. But for the martial artist, this is probably about as good, as intense, and as thick as it gets for 2014. So five chucks up all the way. Grandmaster, well... It's available on Netflix streaming now, so, and you know, with the with the new kid, that's where I see most of my films, except for the rare exception. So, yeah, get out there and do it. Uh, I would give it, I would give it four and a half chucks up. It's really well done. It does everything that those movies that I've always loved to see in them. It follows that very traditional storyline. There's honor, there's love, unrequited. The only thing that brings this down off a of five, because it really is, it's shot brilliantly. The acting is great. The action choreography, hey, some of the Bagua stuff drives me a little crazy, but that's just going to be part of it. It's not trying to be a realistic representation of life or any particular martial style, including Wing Chun. But I've just, I've done it all before. I've seen it done well before. And that's where the raid gets the edge for me, because... It's, it's trying something new, 
not necessarily whole, out of whole cloth, but the, the recipe they've got over there, it's new. It's fresh. <clears throat> so for that, um, for that Grandmaster loses half a chuck, which still gives you a perfectly good stick. So it's, uh, you know, four chucks and a truncheon up for Grandmaster. Both of those are our highlights. All right. Well, I guess that closes it out for the show, folks. I'm glad to be back, and I'm looking forward to having a regular sit-down show with some people in the studio again soon. Got some good interviews that I'm working on. Um, Just please be patient with the scheduling. This is one of those shows that, for the time being anyway, for a little while, you know, there are shows that I keep in my rotation on my podcast that I listen to. They maybe only come out once every three or four months, and sometimes they'll have a flurry, and sometimes, you know, but I keep them in there because I like the show. And when it comes up, it comes up. Now, hopefully you're not going to see three or four month gaps. If you do, then really start to worry about us. But, um, you know, also, also just had better shut my damn mouth when it comes to making promises on how frequently they will come out or how long they will be. But with any luck, within the next week or two, we'll be back with episode 52. And uh, until then, I guess all I have left to say is thanks for sticking around. We will see ya! To clamp down with your iron fist, strides became conveniently available for all the kids. Following the right movement to clamp down with your iron fist, strides became conveniently available for all the kids. Mother, I'm not crack my smack my bitch right here in Hollywood. Nearly two million Americans are incarcerated in the prison system, the prison system of the U.S. They're trying to build a prison. They're trying to build a prison. They're trying to build a prison. Sell your prisons, you don't even flinch All our taxes paying for your wars against the new non-rich Minor drug offenders, sell your prisons, you don't even flinch All our taxes paying for your wars against the new non-rich Rambling is good. All right, here we go then.